Warrior Woman. Welcome back to the podcast, episode 135, 135, baby. My guest today is Kim Vopney, aka the Vagina Coach. Kim is the OG Vagina Coach. She's an author and leader in pelvic floor health. Basically, she's a pro at helping women prevent and overcome pelvic floor dysfunction, such as incontinence and prolapse. She has helped thousands of women, including herself, learn how to do pelvic floor exercises properly, ditch the incontinence pads, eliminate their prolapse symptoms, and get back to living a friggin' full life. In this episode, she drops so many knowledge bombs. It's insane. You're going to love it. I loved this conversation. We went for over an hour and I could have kept her for another hour. I had so many more questions at the end of our conversation that I just wanted to keep her. I just wanted to keep her so she could keep oozing out knowledge. It's so good. What are you going to discover? Okay, you're going to discover how Kim became the vagina coach, her business as a pelvic floor coach, her pelvic health story. We're going to talk about what is a pelvic floor, what is pelvic health. We're going to talk about pelvic floor dysfunction. So we chat about incontinence and why the hell it happens. Uh, We chat about prolapse and why the hell it happens. Uh, We look at the signs and symptoms of incontinence and prolapse. We talk about how we prevent and overcome pelvic floor dysfunction. She talks about a hypertonic pelvic floor, you know, what causes it, uh, how it can be related to hip and back pain, which is super interesting. Uh, And I was telling her that in my work about five or six years ago, I started to make this connection between uh, lower back pain and hip pain and the pelvic floor. And I started to send a lot of the women that I was working with that had chronic lower back and hip pain that couldn't be treated through flexibility, mobility and strength training to pelvic floor specialists. And a lot of these women had pelvic floor dysfunction. Most of them had a hypertonic pelvic floor Uh, But Kim does talk about how it can be uh, a pelvic floor that is weak, that can also cause problems. But she, what she sees more is that this hypertonicity of the pelvic floor and how it can be related to back and hip pain, which is super fascinating. Then we talk about the breath. So she explains, you know, how, how do we breathe? How do we breathe into the pelvic floor? How do we use the breath and the pelvic floor in our training? you know, when we're lifting heavy weights. We talk about the importance of working with a pelvic floor specialist and how every vagina needs a coach. And I really love that. (laughs) Uh, I think that's super cool. 
and we really need to be looking at our pelvic floor as a key part of our foundation in building our foundation. It's kind of like, it is like the bottom of the foundation. If we don't understand our pelvic floors, if we have pelvic floor dysfunction, uh, we don't have a strong foundation. So every vagina, if you have a vagina, you need to work with a coach. And I would highly recommend that you connect in with a pelvic floor specialist. Even if you don't have pelvic floor dysfunction, uh, like incontinence or prolapse, uh, make it part of your practice, make it part of your health practice that you know we need to get the pelvic floor checked out. We talk about some myths of the pelvic floor and then the guidelines for returning to running and weightlifting postpartum or if you're experiencing pelvic floor dysfunction. So Kim talks about her work, how she takes a woman through uh, her program or, or the journey to overcome uh, pelvic floor dysfunction. Okay, Warrior Woman, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with the vagina coach. I love saying vagina. I think I say vagina 50 times a week in warrior school. Vagina forward, hold your vagina, vagina to the ceiling. Such a great word. Okay, enjoy this episode. It's a fire of a conversation. There's so many knowledge bombs. You probably want to have a pen and paper. Welcome to the Warrior School podcast, the podcast for women who train. I believe following a plan that works with your body and has a timeline of years is the future of women's training. I also believe women can train hard. We just need to learn how to do it in a respectful way. So Warrior, this is your go-to show for practical information on training, nutrition, hormones and performance. Myself and tons of experts will help you create a training strategy that works with your body and gets results. I am your teacher, Amy Bow, coach, dietitian, and the creator of Warrior School. Okay, Warrior Woman, let's do this. Okay, Cam, welcome to the Warrior School podcast. Thank you for having me. I want to chat about... What I know is your favorite topic to mm-hmm. talk about, uh, and it is it is one of my favorite topics as well. Uh, we're going to talk about a lot about vaginas, <laughs> and I absolutely love uh, your your name as the vagina coach. How did you did you come up with that? I did, and it was kind of an accident. I I was on stage. I was speaking at a, at a conference for women entrepreneurs and my talk was how optimizing your pelvic health can make you a better mompreneur. And the conference was surrounding everything to do with business for women in business and women entrepreneurs. So all speakers were generally some sort of a business type coach. And so when it was my turn to come up and make my presentation, I joked when I came on stage that, you know, now you have a, a vagina coach for your business. And it just kind of it was meant to just be a bit of an icebreaker and it was sort of a light bulb where I thought, you know, that's, that's kind of catchy. Cause up to then I had been using this handle called fitness doula because I was working primarily with the pregnant and uh, postpartum population. 
And so doula was very applicable to that population. And then as I was moving into more perimenopause, menopause, doula didn't resonate as much. And I was looking for a bit of a change and that's how it happened. I really like that story. And I would actually love to dig a little bit deeper into your story. If you could start by telling us what you do now, and then I'd love to go back and connect some of the key dots um, mm-hmm. in your story to led you that, that led you to doing what you do today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. So uh, essentially what I do now is I'm, I'm an online pelvic health coach and I help people, whether it's through my app or through one-on-one coaching through Zoom, or whether it's through self-directed online programs. Those are essentially the three ways that I, that I help people. And I've also written a couple of books. So for people that like to read, that's another option as well. And that's not where I started. (laughs) So in terms of, well, and just I'll add one more thing. So I still help on occasion and I do have programs for the pregnant population and new moms. Um, however, the majority of people I work with are some have never even been pregnant before, but people who are already experiencing incontinence or organ prolapse or chronic back pain and are looking for some help. So that's generally who I help the most in terms of where I started, how I got into this was through kind of my own fear and fascination of pregnancy and birth and wondering how giant babies came out of people and women carried on. And I knew that my mom had had issues. You know, she had, she stopped running because she was leaking urine. She eventually had uh, surgery for incontinence. She had chronic low back pain. She never, no matter what she did could flatten her abs. And so I kind of had, and she would always often say, Oh, that's because of you and your brother. And, And just sort of jokingly, but at the same time, very true. And her experience of pregnancy was what kind of planted that early seed for me. And I was adamant about not ever going through that. So that's kind of my growing up. And then when I decided I did want to start a family, I was really determined to have a different story than my mom. So I was pretty certain that I was actually going to opt for a cesarean birth. And the more I started to learn about that and learn about vaginal births and, and pelvic health, the more... I wasn't sure that was necessarily going to prevent all the issues I thought it would. And my midwives had recommended a product to me called the, the Epino, which is a biofeedback device that helps people connect with their pelvic floor with biofeedback. So it helps them see contractions and relaxations of that group of muscles. Maybe when they, it's the first time they've ever really even thought about that as a group of muscles, right? And it also can help with perineal massage. So the intention is that it helps reduce the likelihood of tearing. So of course that was my main motivator. I used this. I had a positive experience. I did use midwives. I was in a sideline birth position, which also can help preserve the the perineum as well. But I felt like this was a product that I felt more people should know about. So I contacted the company in Germany and I said, Hey, could I be a distributor in Canada? And that's how it started. And it wasn't supposed to be a business. I just thought it would be kind of a little side thing. I'd have a bit of extra pocket money here and there. And that then led into, uh, in 2009, it, it, I was laid off from my full-time job. So it, I, I said, all right, let me see if I can turn this into a real business. So that's kind of when I started a website and then I started to add other pelvic health products. So I had an e-commerce store and then Twitter was coming on the scene and I was starting to try to find other people who were talking about this and there weren't very many. Uh, and then I, I ended up finding a woman in New York who was talking about diastasis recti, which is 
another challenge that women have, especially after they have babies. And I was starting to connect the dots between the pelvic floor and the abdominal wall. So I took her training and I was going to bring it back to Canada. And I then met another trainer in Toronto who was also interested in the same thing. We started collaborating. We had a physiotherapist starting to refer patients to us. And eventually the three of us, the physio, that other trainer and myself sat down and said, you know, we think that there's a void in the market with regards to information and exercise and products for postpartum recovery. So we formed a a business called Bellies Inc. And now I was juggling two businesses, one of which was manufacturing, which I had no idea. None of us had any idea what we were doing. Um, But we carried on. And along the way, we ended up creating a certification course because we working in the fitness and physio world, there was zero information for pelvic health. And it's a group of muscles, just like we learn about in all the other personal training information. So we felt like that was another void. So created that. And again, juggling those. And then eventually the the three of us never went into the business to manage manufacturing. And it just was never really our passion to do that. I ended up buying my partners out and was going to amalgamate into my business. And then the Epino that originally started it all, the Health Canada made a change to the health, the the medical device regulations and the company, the manufacturer of the Epino chose to actually take their product out of Canada. So that made me make the decision to actually close my e-commerce store down and then eventually sell. I I did sell the product side of Bellies Inc as well and kept the education. And that, that was kind of the transition into now where I am, where I'm completely online, but I was also sort of starting to not let go of that pregnancy side of things, but more and more people were coming to me after they had a problem. And what I recognized, we had recognized this even in Belly's Inc is people were more motivated to fix a problem that already exists than they are to prevent it from happening in the first place. And so that just became the majority of people that I was working with and still do work with. So Belly's Inc. still lives. It's in the hands of, a, of an amazing woman um, here in BC. And I'm happy to see that that still live on. And the physio, Julia, and the other trainer, Samantha, and myself, we still teach together on occasion. And yeah, that's that's the, that's the story. <laughs> yeah, did your interest start? So it started uh, when you were thinking about having kids, did yeah. you have a, a a birthing experience that got you really interested in, uh, you know, the the prolapse and the incontinent side of things, or were you working with women that that's what you were starting to see? You were starting to see a lot of women that were really struggling with these issues. Mm-hmm. Well, I had seen my mom struggle with incontinence. I had never heard the term prolapse. So when I was in my own pregnancy. I had still never heard of prolapse. I knew about incontinence. And in my mind, with the very limited knowledge I had at the time, I still had not known about pelvic floor physio. I I, I knew very little. But my interpretation was, if I could prevent tearing, then I won't have incontinence. So I had sort of put those two as, oh, that's what causes incontinence. Now I know that that's, I mean, tearing can be a contributing factor, but just if you don't tear, that doesn't mean you won't have incontinence. So that was my initial was seeing what my mom had gone through. And then after I did, was able to prevent tearing. Um, I didn't experience incontinence after my first, but after my second in an exercise class, I was like, Oh, 
what the heck? And then that was kind of like, hold on a minute. I didn't tear. And why is this happening? And that was around the time when I had, um, it was about four or five months afterwards I got laid off. And then I was really heavy into the world of pelvic health. So up to that point, I still had not heard the term prolapse and it wasn't until maybe about a year or so. So I started officially started my business in 2009 and it was about a year or so after that, when I was uh, in a doctor's office with two doctors who I was kind of like my own little medical sales rep. And I was taking the epino around to show the physicians. And so I was with a physician and his son, who was also a physician. And they, they both said to me, well, can people who have a cystocele use this? And in my mind, I'm thinking, what the heck is a cystocele? I'd never heard that. And, and so I just said, I, I'm not familiar with that term. They said, it's a type of pel- pelvic organ prolapse. And I said, I'm still not familiar with that. So they explained it to me. And I said, I see no reason why they couldn't. But then of course I went running home and was Googling and learning everything I could about prolapse. And then myself, I developed, like I had an early stage. So once I learned about pelvic floor physical therapy, which was around that same time, I found out I had an early stage rectocele, which is a type of prolapse. And that's where the rectum bulges into the back wall of the vagina. I didn't have any symptoms for it, but I just kind of kept it in check. And then later on, like several years later, I ended up developing a uterine prolapse as well. So up until then, prolapse was something that I really didn't know a lot about. I, when we had created the course in Belly Zinc, we, we talked about it, but none of us really shared, none of us had prolapse at the time. Well, Julia, the pelvic floor, she had a tiny one, but so it was kind of like it, it was just a thing. We didn't really talk about it. And then as we started to, you know, I developed one. And when we started talking more openly about our own personal stories, all of a sudden it was like the floodgates opened and then we just saw more people talking about it. And then we were looking and saying, you know, the stats that we've been sharing, but 50%, yeah, they're actually really true, (laughs) very accurate. And um, so many people come to me for prolapse because they know that I have experienced it. Those people often have incontinence at the same time. And then another layer to that is about a year, just over a year and a half ago, I had surgery for the rectocele. So I was able to reverse my uterine prolapse through exercise and lifestyle, but the rectocele did not change. Um, And so after living with it for nine years, I made the decision to have surgery. So then now I have a whole other side where people come to me for support through surgery. Okay. All right. I would love, can we just talk about like, what is prolapse? Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that that would be a really cool place to start because I think still, uh, even though I think over the last like seven to eight years, it's, you know, really come into, uh, this space around, you know, pelvic floor physios, they're very known now and this work is a little bit more common, but I think there's still a lot of women and a lot of people that, uh, aren't familiar with, mm-hmm. with prolapse. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot. And there's a, a woman by the name of Sherry Palm, who she, she's been kind of an, um, an ambassador really advocating for specifically prolapse awareness for gosh, like probably it's very close to the same amount of time that I have. So probably close to 18 ish years because she was sidelined by a prolapse diagnosis, having never, ever heard of this term. And so that is, I hear that all the time where people are thinking, why has nobody ever told me about this before? Why has this 
happened to me? What could I, you know, what had I, if I had done this, could I have prevented it? All this kind of thing. So what organ prolapse is, is where the, th the three most common organs that are associated are the bladder, the uterus, and the rectum. The urethra and the intestines can also be involved. I would say the most common though are bladder, uterus, rectum. So when one, two, or three of those, or the urethra and the intestines as well, shift out of their optimal anatomical position, they can start to bulge into or descend into the vagina. So in the case of the uterine prolapse, the uterus can descend from the top down. So the top of the vagina is the cervix and the uterus that can start to descend into the vagina. In the case of the rectum, the rectum can bulge into the back wall of the vagina. And that is called either a posterior wall prolapse or a recto seal. The bladder bulges in or can bulge into the front wall of the vagina, and that can be called an anterior wall prolapse or a cystocele, a bladder prolapse. Um, and so part of the confusion around it is people may be told they have a vaginal prolapse, or they might just be told they have a prolapse. And because we aren't even aware of what that term means, we don't know to ask other questions. What organ is prolapsing? What stage, like how far advanced is it? You know, that type of thing. So an early stage prolapse is often asymptomatic. And so a lot of people may not know until it's kind of been progressing for years and years and years. And then all of a sudden one day they feel something from maybe exercising or they wipe and they feel a bulge. Or for me, I was having sex with my husband and all of a sudden it felt like he hit something and I had had zero symptoms up to then, but all of a sudden it was just like, Oh, it, what the heck was that? It was like, he hit a wall. So it it's, it can be asymptomatic or it can have symptoms of back pain, heaviness, dragginess, difficulty inserting a tampon, tampons get pushed out, constipation, difficulty starting the flow of urine, um, discomfort with sex, pain. There, there are some people that do experience pain. I wouldn't say that's one of the more common symptoms, but it can happen. Um, yeah. So over 50% of women have some degree of prolapse in their lifetime. And that's statistically more than incontinence, but we have much more awareness and there's more people talking about incontinence. So we think that's more common. Yeah. That, that stat, when, when you just said that before at the start of our conversation is, is crazy and astounding. And I didn't even know that 50% of women in some time of their life can experience that. What are like, what are the common causes of it? I know you did say that you do work with women that haven't even, um, had children or, mm -hmm. you know, birthed a child into the world. So, uh, what else causes them other than maybe birth or the trauma from the birth? Yeah. So pregnancy and birth are definitely major significant risk factors. Um, and size of baby's head. There's also something called, so you can have a, a vaginal birth where you don't have any tearing. However, there is still stretch and pressure on the nerves, but about 30 ish percent of people can actually have an injury where part of the muscle part of one of the muscles in the pelvic floor can actually pull away from the, the bone. It can be a partial or a complete. And when we, when we lose that support, that, that greatly increases the risk of prolapse. And so again, it's part of that 
screening, if we had better education during pregnancy and screening in that postpartum, so people knew and had immediate care, I think that would really transform things for people. But so pregnancy and birth can be a contributor. We know that chronic coughing. So people who may have like, everybody's been afraid of COVID with the cough, um, but smokers, people with emphysema, um, asthma, asthmatics, anybody who has kind of a chronic cough can definitely coughing is one of the greatest increases of increasers of intra-abdominal pressure. So we all have intra-abdominal pressure and different things increase it. Just standing up from a chair will increase intra-abdominal pressure, but coughing has been shown to be one of the, it creates the most intra-abdominal pressure. So coughing is a big one. Um, posture. So we, we have some research that has shown that the, the kind of roundness, like kyphotic posture. So like a hunchback, which most of us are now because we spend so much time at a computer. Right. So we have some research that showed that people who have kyphosis are at an increased risk of prolapse as well. Um, constipation. So chronic straining, it, it's, you're kind of mimicking pushing during childbirth if you're constantly straining every single day to, to have a bowel movement, um, weight. So the amount of weight that we carry on our body, that pel the pelvic floor manages the weight from up above. And obviously they manage an increasing load when we're pregnant. And if we are putting on increased body mass, then the, the muscles will be managing that load as well. So an increased, we've shown an increased risk with higher BMIs. Um, those would be the most common, I would say hormones can play a role in there as well. So we have hormonal fluctuations with menstruation. And a lot of people will say that just prior to their period, they may feel more symptomatic or they might notice that they do leak urine at that time, but every other time is fine. We also see that in perimenopause menopause. So as we're approaching the transition into menopause where our home hormones are fluctuating, but then also declining. So as we reach menopause, we aren't producing estrogen anymore. And the pelvis in and around the bladder and the, the walls of the vagina really love estrogen. There's a lot of receptors there. And when we no longer have it circulating, those tissues can become thinner and drier, lose some of the suppleness and juiciness that they have. And that can trigger things like incontinence or um, prolapse, or even make those symptoms worse. And usually that's a time. So again, back to the people that I most commonly work with incontinence, it's kind of like, Oh, it's fine. Whatever. I just put a pad on, you know, we we've been told from media that that's just what we do. We just manage it. So a lot of people do that. They just put up with it. And same with prolapse. Maybe they just kind of had a few little symptoms here and there, but then once we reach menopause, all of a sudden those kind of gentle little nudges become really big pushes. Like you've got to pay attention to me now. And that's usually when people are taking more action, more likely to take action, I would say. Yeah. Are there correlations between some of the risk factors for a prolapse and incontinence? Like, do you see, um, yeah. Do you see an overlap with yeah, the presentation? Sure. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And really like when we, when we look at some of the contributing factors and when we look at the the, the role of the pelvic floor within that. So the, the pelvic floor is a group of muscles that has jobs of supporting organs, managing continence, supporting our spine and pelvis, sexual response. So when we think about those jobs is well, that's what the pelvic floor does. Whenever we have something that can just like interfere with that or disrupt that, 
it could lead to symptoms. So sometimes, like, again, we can have somebody that could have incontinence and prolapse. We sometimes have people that have prolapse that masks their incontinence because that bulge actually may press on the urethra and prevent the incontinence that's actually there. Um, but yeah, so chronic coughing, straining, um, injury to the, the muscles and tissues, anything that will interfere with the capacity of the muscles to react at the right time or with the right amount of force, those both are both necessary, whether it's for organ support or for continence, if that makes sense. Yeah. And so when someone experiences incontinence or, you know, uh, they might be running or lifting and, you know, they, they do, um, some urine comes out, what's actually happening? What's, what's happening physically or Mm -hmm. with, with the body or the structure of the bladder? Sure. So as I mentioned in the pelvic floor, it's a group, it's, it's several muscles. It's not just one muscle and it's in layers and part of that is to help is, is sphincter control. So with the openings that we have, the urethra, the vagina, and the anus, when we want gas or poop or pee to come out, we need the pelvic floor muscles to relax so we can have an opening and a release. It's an elimination. And then we want those muscles to be able to keep those openings closed when we don't want something to come out. If we have something that creates a force or a pressure. So I talked about that, that intra-abdominal pressure. If for instance, a heavy lift or a cough or a sneeze or the, the impact from running creates that increase in pressure that those muscles are not able to manage. So whether it's because they don't have as much strength as they need to close the openings off, or maybe it's because they aren't reacting in time or they're reacting too slowly. So then a little bit of urine will leak out, or maybe they have, they're holding on to tension. So maybe they have some stuck tension there. That's then contributing to the lack of force and the lack of the ability to coordinate um, the timing. So it's not just about like people who may leak or have urgency or deal with prolapse. They might say, they interpret that as my pelvic floor is weak. And when we think my pelvic floor is weak, we think we have really saggy, droopy muscles that we need more contraction from, which is true for some people. But what I find is actually more common these days anyway, is those people actually have more tension. They're, they're very tight muscles and tight doesn't equal strong. So if we have a really tight muscle, it, part of it's opportunity to create power, generate force has been used up and has been used all day long. So it's a tired muscle, tired group of muscles now. And it also, it's, it's range of motion to be able to contribute to that force is partially used up. And because it has been partially used up all day, it's quite tired. So again, it's not going to react in, in the right amount of time. Right. So, so it's about learning. And this is where pelvic floor physical therapy comes in when you can have a visit and an assessment with a professional who can evaluate that part of the body, you will understand, pardon me, you'll gain an understanding of what your pelvic floor is doing. Is your pelvic floor tending to be on the overactive side and it needs a little bit of help to kind of relax and let go? Or is it on the underactive side and we kind of need to fire it up a little bit? Or is it in a nice balanced way? Or do we have scar tissue? 
mm-hmm. from an injury that's maybe interfering with the the capacity of the muscles? Or is it just, is it nerve damage? Is it the signal that's not getting there? So we have to kind of have that understanding. And when we go to see our family doctor for a pap, the, the, thankfully a pap doesn't take very long because nobody loves it. It's uncomfortable, but the speculum goes in, it pushes, if there is any prolapse, it would push it out of the way. And the quick kind of internal with the fingers doesn't like, they might ask you to do a one quick squeeze, but that's really it. It doesn't really give us a thorough evaluation or understanding of what's happening. And there's no treatment offered for it either. So if they found that the pelvic floor was weak, they wouldn't necessarily provide the information other than go home and do your Kegels. And we have evidence to support that most people are doing Kegels incorrectly and a brochure is not helpful. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Kim, there's so much in this that I really want to unpack. Uh, What I was seeing in my work, I work only with women and I do a lot of mobility work, flexibility work. Um, You know, I, I, I love quality movement and developing someone's body from the ground up. But I was, I was coming across all of these women that had this chronic back and hip pain. And so I would, you know, assess them and then we would do work on, what we needed to do work around their hips that, you know, if they needed flexibility or stability or, you know, what was going on with their spine and their lumbar and their sacroiliac joint. And, you know, I did what I could, but then there was a point in my work and I was like, why am I seeing this? And I got to like kind of the ceiling of my knowledge because, you know, I did two degrees, but we weren't taught about the pelvic floor and, you know, how to like, I guess, how to even understand it or train it. And so I started to do some research. And then this was the time that pelvic floor physios were, you know, or a therapist was really starting to to come on board in the, the health space. So I would send my women to them. And a lot of them had really hypertonic pelvic floors. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about, and I don't know if you've seen in your work, this like this presentation, because I find it extremely fascinating, this this hip pain, this back pain or this SIJ pain mm-hmm. that even after doing, you know, mobility work, rehab work, strength work, it's still there and it's still presenting and it can be linked into to the pelvic floor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's a, an interesting piece of research by a Canadian researcher, pelvic health physical therapist, Dr. Sinead Dufour, and in her study, 95% of women presenting with low back pain had some form of pelvic floor dysfunction. And there, there are other pieces of research that link the two as well. So the, the two are very correlated. And how many people have had back pain? So many people have had back pain. And where do we go? We go to chiropractic or acupuncture or massage therapy, or we do stretches we go to regular physiotherapy and all of that can absolutely help and absolutely play a role. However, oftentimes the missing link is the pelvic floor in terms of long lasting relief and overcoming it. We need to address the pelvis and and what's happening in the pelvic floor. So the tailbone is an attachment point for the pelvic floor muscles. And that can be a source of, um, tension in the back part of the pelvic floor that can then influence the SI. You talked about the sacroiliac joints and the the pelvic floor is, as I mentioned, it's layers of muscle, but there's also the surrounding hip musculature, the glutes that are all kind of 
working together. Even though they're not part of the pelvic floor, they still play a vital role. And when we have potentially, um, you know, it could be weakness, and I mean that by it could be overactivity or underactivity in the pelvic floor, then something else is going to come in and try to pick up the slack. And so that can then create those imbalances that could lead to the SI joint pain or pubic joint pain, tailbone pain, hip, hip pain, what have you. So a lot of hip and knee and low back pain can be tied back to the pelvic floor. And when we, and, and I would say more often than not, it's overactivity. It's that hypertonicity and, and muscles that are non-relaxing. And sometimes it could be because of a lifestyle or a habit or fear or trauma or overactivity because it's the it's the pelvic floor that's been trying to pick up the slack for something else or it could be somebody who has thought they needed to do more kegels and they've been really focusing on doing a lot more squeezing and kegels and maybe that's not serving them so we we kegels can play a role even in the hypertonic world a lot of people are told not to do kegels if they have a tight pelvic floor and i agree to an extent we we need a balance between effort and ease so mm. kind of as you were talking about with mobility we need mobility in our pelvic floor muscles as well so we need strength we need endurance but we also need suppleness and we need that balance so i would not completely remove kegels from somebody's practice but i wouldn't have them emphasize that voluntary contraction i would have them spend more time on the relaxation and then every once in a while do a voluntary activation. And sometimes we even had one interesting piece of research that looked at people who were asked to do a max contraction. So thinking about doing the biggest, hardest, most incredible Kegel they've ever done in their life actually elicited a greater relaxation response, right? So for each re um, reaction, there's an equal and opposite reaction or each action, so to speak. So, um, yeah. So it's very common. I would say it's more common for there to be hypertonicity that is contributing to the other kind of hip pain and back pain. It could also be laxity in the pelvic floor as well. But again, more often than not, I'm generally finding that it's hyper tightness. Yeah. So I would love for you to speak to, you know, when you start working with a woman and she presents with um, you know, symptoms or signs of having some pelvic floor dysfunction, where do you start? You know, do you start with education? Do you, you know, start with the assessment? Could you talk about what that journey looks like for mm -hmm. her? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Some people have come to me already having seen a pelvic floor physio. So a lot of physios will, will refer their patients to me to handle kind of the, the ongoing movement piece. Some people have still never heard of a pelvic floor physio. So I'm always recommending that they do if they have the opportunity to incorporate that into their, um, their pelvic health care, essentially at least once a year. I then do, uh, whether I have something from a physio or not, I'm, I'm doing my own kind of health screen history, learning about their menstrual cycles, if they're still cycling, their diet, like what's their, what's their eating like, what's their hydration like. What's their current movement practice like? What's their birth history, if any? How close to menopause are they? Um, any surgeries, falls, accidents, you know, kind of getting a whole picture of this person's background and what could potentially be influencing with the symptoms that they've presented with. There are also people that come to me that have zero symptoms and they just want to be proactive, which I love. There's not very many of those. <laughs> I hope that one day there's more, but 
Um, so kind of trying to understand what, what they might be dealing with. And then I'm going to do a physical side where I will look at things like their posture. I'll watch them breathing. I will have them do an abdominal wall assessment. Like, and because I work online, I'm having them feel their own body, which initially I remember back when we started teaching our course and we were working this with this coach and he said, you have to get this online. And we thought, Oh my gosh, this can never be online. It all has to be on. It has to be hands-on all the time. And the more I worked with people online, the more I actually in some ways preferred it because it was people not it, the, the patient or the client was not relying on me telling them something. They were actually feeling it in their own body and, and becoming comfortable with touching parts of the body. Maybe they haven't touched before. So I don't walk them through an internal pelvic floor exam, but touching their abdominal wall, touching the external attachment points of their pelvic floor, even using a mirror to see if they can see any gentle movement that's happening there. Mm -hmm. It can be really empowering. So I'll have them do some, you know, movement, breath, uh, assessment with their hands on their own body. And then from there, that will kind of help identify some of what could be contributing factors to those symptoms that they maybe have been dealing with. So maybe it's how much they sit. Maybe it's the position they sit in. Maybe it's, they haven't, they've been dealing with chronic constipation. Um, maybe they have had habits around a fear of public bathrooms. So they hold on. Mm. Maybe it's what they're eating that is contributing to urges, really strong urges that they can't overcome. So we're kind of trying to, you know, filter down and give them that person some strategies to change maybe, or alter or some behaviors that we could try to replace with something different. So giving them some strategies that will help them improve, whether it's diet or lifestyle or movement, sleep, stress, you know, all those types of things. Uh, and usually what I do is they'll go home with, I don't know, like usually it's like up to three different exercises. I don't want to overload them. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I can, you know, I love spilling all these details. And after a while you can see people, they just, their face goes blank <laughs> and they can't retain anything more. So I have to be careful yeah. to rein it in. Keep it's it, the keep coach it. in us, the yeah, coach, the teacher of like, I've got all of this knowledge and information and tools and I can really help. So here, yeah. Yeah. And sometimes they don't need to know that the pelvic floor attaches so that they just need to know what do I need to do? Like, so we, we have to kind of judge the person. How much do they want to know? How much do they need to know and give them some actionable steps that they can go away with? I check in with them. Usually I do up to about four sessions. I usually find like, I, I purposely don't keep a regular clientele that I train on an ongoing basis because really I want the people to have the tools and them monitor themselves and, and discipline themselves to actually put it into practice. And I have my app that you know, I have a weekly coaching and, you know, there's other, there's ways they can get support, but I really want to give them the tools so they don't need me. Um, and they need pelvic floor physio once, once a year or more, if they have a, something to address, but generally that's my prescription is learn what you need to do, do it, see a pelvic floor physical therapist once a year and come back. If you have anything that changes or you have a problem that you need to address. Yeah. Is there a lot of research around like the state of the nervous system and like how stressed the body is that increases our risk for uh, like pelvic floor dysfunction? I can't say that I know that research very well. So I know that 
it exists. It's not, it's not an area that I have spent mm-hmm. a lot of time focusing on. So I, I don't feel like I'm adequately prepared to comment on that one, but I do know that I do know that stress can influence the pelvic floor muscles because, and, and even cold weather. So when we have a, a state of tension that can exacerbate symptoms, it can inhibit some of the functions. So that's a very high level statement with regards to the nervous system. I haven't dove into the nitty gritty enough. Yeah. But if we think of them as a group of muscles that, you know, need to be looked after and need to be nourished, need to be trained. Uh, and a lot of us don't eat, well, we're not even aware and connected into them. And then, you know, we think about if our state of our nervous system is a little bit chaotic and stress, it definitely affects you know, the quality of our other muscles and our other tissues and our ability to, you know, train and recover. And so, yeah, I would say that very much so would, you know, and I don't know the research either. And it would be super interesting to dig into that. Uh, If, if a woman is, you know, really struggling with leakage or urgency, like what is, like, what is the movement practice for that? Like how, and she, she doesn't, there's such a disconnection I see with women and their pelvic floor. Well, women and their bodies, <laughs> really, because we've spent so long just disconnecting from them. Yeah. But the connection to like the the breath and the whole pelvic floor, uh, because like you said, Kim, often when we think of pelvic floor, we think of squeezing and kegels and like, yeah. that's, that's it. And that's all we really know how to do. And, and most of us actually don't even know how to do them well or properly. And so what, how do you work with a woman, especially online, like talking her through, she's got that physical assessment where she's touching herself, yeah. but how do you help her understand what is her pelvic floor and like, how does it move and how does she start to connect in with it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the disconnect piece is so common. And that can be from shame or embarrassment or trauma or just just lack of education. Nobody's ever asked. I've never really paid attention because everything just kind of worked. And then when things don't work, you're not really sure what to do. So I use a lot of props. So I have like, I've got a vulva puppet. I have lots of different pelvis models that I use to help point. So people, I can point to parts on the body to help illustrate what people may be sensing or feeling or so they can identify where things are in their own body. I also use a lot of visualization and cues and there's tons of them out there. Everybody always asks me, what's the best pelvic floor cue? And there actually research showed that an anal cue. So thinking about squeezing the anus was actually the one that elicited most likely to elicit a good pelvic floor contraction, Mm -hmm. but in people who already have a lot of tension in their pelvic floor, especially in the back part, that may not work for them. So we can't just blanket statements, tell everybody to squeeze their anus. We have to see what resonates with that person. And it could be like some people like the blueberry cue, where you think about picking up a blueberry with your vagina and your anus, or it could be sipping a smoothie through a straw with your vagina, or it could be a jellyfish visualization. I had one woman who, when I was teaching her, kind of the, the expansion and lengthening of the pelvic floor in response to an inhalation. And then the activation where there's a contract and lift of the pelvic floor on the exhalation, I was going through all my cues and nothing was, she was like, no, well, maybe. And she kind of, she just said, you know what? I visualize a fishnet. And so she said, I think of a fishnet casting out on my inhale. And I think of gathering a fishnet when I exhale, I was like, 
all right, there you go. There's another cue. <laughs> you know, maybe it'll work for somebody else. So, so it's just about trying to find something that elicits the response that we're looking for. And um, so to answer the question we were saying before, when, when we think of somebody who has incontinence for say, uh, for instance, there's stress urinary incontinence, which is where little bits of urine leak out with that exertion. So that laugh, cough, sneeze, jump. And then there's urge incontinence, which is where people can have very strong, sudden urges and feel like they can't make it to the bathroom in time. And they may have a combination of both of those. The urgency is um, not to say that exercise won't help, but a lot of times it can be diet. It could be sometimes nerve related. It can be behavioral. So that's a big piece that I would address first. Um, with stress urinary incontinence, that's most likely to respond to exercise. And when I mentioned earlier that there's a component of timing with the pelvic floor and there's a component of force. So we need the right amount of force produced to meet the increase in intra-abdominal pressure at the right time. And the pelvic floor knows how to do all of that. We, nobody ever had to tell us when we were young, how to do Kegels and pick up blueberries and all that kind of stuff. It just did it. It, it does it automatically. It's an anticipatory action, but things like all of those, like life falls on the tailbone, surgeries, fear, trauma, pregnancy, birth, all of those can interfere with that anticipatory element and that timing and that force production may be off. So we, we need to retrain the pelvic floor. We need to remind it that, Hey, I'm going to do this movement. And now I need you to pre-contract so that you're ready to manage this load. And the more we do it, it patterns that response so that it then eventually it's like, okay, now I'm responding at the right time. And then the more we add load, the more we increase and progressively load the pelvic floor. Now it's building up strength and endurance to be able to meet whatever those different loads are. Does that make sense? So think let's take, for instance, um, once I've taught somebody how to do a Kegel, I call it the core breath, then that's the fundamental piece. And then we start to layer it into a movement. So we'd start with maybe a pelvic tilt or a bridge or a squat. And then we basically exhale and engage the pelvic floor just before they press up into a bridge or just before they stand up in their squat. And then eventually they engage it as they stand up in the squat or as they push their hips up. And then eventually they don't have to do it anymore because the pelvic floor is doing it. And now we add load to that movement. So they might be doing squats with weights in their hands, or they might start to do a dynamic, maybe a lunge instead. You know what I mean? So it's, it's the principles of fitness with progressive loading. Mm -hmm. We need to come back to the fundamentals, retrain that response timing, and then start to progressively load it. Yeah. Can you speak to the breath, that breathing? Cause I spend a lot of time with the women that I work with on that, on isolating them, getting them to, to, to lay down and, and stand and do certain types of work with their pelvis, with their breath. And so many of them, we just weren't taught how to breathe, breathe into a lot of, a lot of women think, okay, inhale. Okay. I'm going to squeeze and contract and lift and like pull everything in. Can you speak to the breath, the connection of the breath to the pelvic floor and that lengthening that canister, the expanding. And then you just said when you were explaining a movement, like standing up out of their squat, the contraction of the pelvic floor, what does that? Yeah. Visually. Um, and what does it feel like and look mm -hmm. like? Yeah, that is such a common thing I hear is I've always, you know, people say I've, I've been breathing, 
the opposite, or I've been doing this incorrectly. It's like you you're breathing, you're alive. It's not like you're breathing wrong per <laughs> yeah. se, but, but the normal physiological response of the pelvic floor with an in breath is to expand and lengthen. So if we can think about a canister, four points on a canister, the top of the canister is the diaphragm, which is our breathing muscle. The bottom of the canister is the pelvic floor. The front is the transversus abdominis, which is our deep abdominals. And the back are muscles called the multifidus, which run, run along the spine. So those four players make up kind of the, some people call the inner core, the inner canister. And the relationship between those four is very important. And when one of those players is maybe not pulling their weight, then it can disrupt that whole system. So when we take a breath in, the diaphragm moves down, essentially it's, it's sort of flattened. So the ribs are expanding, the diaphragm is flattening, it's drawing air into the body. And the response that it's looking for is for the belly, the abdominals to relax and expand and for the pelvic floor to lengthen and expand so that as much air can come into our body as possible, basically. And then on the exhalation, the opposite is happening. So the pelvic floor is contracting and there's a gentle lift. There's a natural inward motion of the abdominal wall and the diaphragm lifts back up and the ribs recoil basically. So that's sort of the, the synergistic pattern that is happening all day, every day, or ideally happening all day, every day. Well, even when we don't think about it, things like posture or fear or overactivities in certain muscles or um, atrophy in certain muscles might disrupt that relationship. So part of that retraining I was talking about before is retraining that synergy between that core four, I call them. And the reason I use the term core four or core breath is because the pelvic floor is the foundation of the core. And we have all heard core exercise and core fitness for years and years and years and years. And the pelvic floor has been left out of that conversation. And it is arguably the most important part of the core. And so when we appreciate that it is part of the core, part of the, the core breath, so the part of the core, but also that it works in relationship with the diaphragm, the breath, and to put those two together, then it, it helps unravel again the, the confusion that's around that, oh, I just have to squeeze really tight to do a Kegel or in a lot of people squeeze their inner thighs or squeeze their glutes. So it's, it's kind of giving a bigger, a, more of a global approach to this Kegel exercise that we've all kind of this, the elusive exercise, the elusive exercise that we've heard about. Um, but that's what happens. So the in breaths are all about expansion. So expanding in the ribs, softening in the belly and lengthening the pelvic floor. And with women in particular, so many of us have also been accustomed to holding tension in our abdominal wall. And, and, mm. you know, well, if I just engage my core quote unquote all day long, then I, that is good for me, or it'll help my back pain, or it will make my abs stronger. And what that does is it, it doesn't allow the breath to be as full as it could be. It doesn't, it interferes with that relationship between the diaphragm and the pelvic floor. It interferes with digestion it creates fatigue in those muscles again, like there's, there is an element of them being postural muscles, but if we're chronically engaging them and sucking in all day, that doesn't serve us and can create a lot of 
compensation. So we want to let go. So part of, again, learning the core breath is also getting people to be comfortable with letting go of their belly and then starting to feel that expansion between their sit bones in that diamond of the, like the four points in the pelvic floor, pubic joint, tailbone, two sit bones. Can we expand that diamond? So again, it comes down to visualization and you talked about positioning different people will feel that in different positions as well. So I usually start sitting on a stability ball. So the roundness of the ball pushes up in the perineum. Some people don't feel it. So we take them on the ground and lay down on their back. Some people may still not feel it. So then I flip them over onto all fours and go into a wide leg child's pose. And usually of all of those three, that's the one that's most likely going to be the one where people can actually feel that sort of ebb and flow of the pelvic floor in response to the breath. Yeah, so important. <laughs> you just it's it's crazy, isn't it? It's like, yeah, we we we've, you know, we're breathing because we're still alive, but yeah. especially, you know, I come from a strength training background and I competed in Olympic weightlifting and no one really taught us about the breath then, only yeah. through years and years of strength training and then working with some really good coaches did we learn how to breathe into the entire like system uh, or space and learn how to brace it and engage it because you just cannot lift a heavy load you cannot have like 100 kilos on your back and squat without understanding well you can't do it well or safely yeah. <laughs> without understanding the connection and yeah. i I think it's just, it's so important to understand. Yeah. And for so many women, you know, we've spent so much of our lives holding our stomachs in, like hold the tummy in, make the tummy look flat. Let's wear all these tight clothes that like yeah. squeeze the abdominal. So, it, you know, you think about Spanx and all of this, all of these things. And sure, you know, we want to dress up and look nice sometimes, but do we spend time? fully relaxing the belly and yeah, the abdomen. Yeah. And that that tension also increases intra-abdominal pressure, which then goes down onto the pelvic floor. So that can exacerbate existing prolapse symptoms. Sometimes it can actually bring on the a shift of the organs into to prolapse as well. So and then it can also create in con, um, constipation, which can then Again, so it's, it's like this whole, everything is, is interwoven together and strategies that we have kind of just accepted or assumed or done just because somebody told us to it, we realize how, um, how they've really been kind of an interference. They've been interfering in our wellness and our well being. Yeah. And I think it's such an important part of building our foundation. I talk a lot about you need to build a strong foundation. So you need to build your body from the ground up. And part of that is understanding your pelvic floor, is training your pelvic floor. So you need to find someone that is experienced, that can help lead you through that because that, you know, I, I guess that's kind of like the bottom of the foundation. It's like the, the, the cement of the house, really, if we're not yeah. understanding the pelvic floor and the breath and how to connect it and relax it and contract it, like our whole house is going to come crumbling, <laughs> crumbling yeah. down. Yeah. And, the foundation is yeah. the most important part. Most yeah. important part. Yeah. What about returning to running or returning to lifting? So uh, that could be, you know, post birth, it could, you know, is it, is it the same for someone who 
um, is postpartum to someone who's experiencing pelvic floor dysfunction, incontinence, like pain, like can't run or lift without leakage or some kind of discomfort there? Is that journey similar or is it very different? Um, I would say it's similar in, in many ways. And thankfully, there was some uh, an amazing physio and a couple of her colleagues in uh, her name is Granny Donnelly. She's over in the UK. She's in um, Ireland. She recognized, so we, we've, you know, we being people who've worked in pelvic health, I, I'll, I'm saying that sometimes on social media, it's called the pelvic mafia. So the pelvic <laughs> mafia has generally had, an, had concerns with people who are returning to higher intensity activity at that six week green light. So we've had this elusive six week green light that everybody gets. And then, oh, I've been cleared for exercise. And a lot of people will then go from zero to 60 and they don't necessarily do any of the baby steps in between. So many of us who work with clients through that have counseled them and have had them slowing down, done retraining work with them. However, the general population just goes back to doing what they were doing, or sometimes they go even harder because now they feel like they have weight to lose and they want to get strong again. And so they're choosing the hardest, most intense activity they can find. And what Grania and her team did is they looked at a bunch of different research and came up with some guidelines specific to postpartum running. However, we can really extrapolate that information and apply it to people who are running with symptoms who need to scale back and retrain, we can extrapolate it to heavy lifting or more intense activity. So I, I use those, I refer people to those guidelines all the time, because it's just such an, it's such an amazing protocol, really, that they've put together. And, and the main components are, there's a timeline, not six weeks, closer to six months. So between four and six ish months, I think they actually say three to six months, bare minimum that we have had time for the tissues in the body to, to be healing and, and have some recovery time. There's also pelvic floor physical therapy part as part of it. So the person will have seen a pelvic floor physio during that time, potentially even continuing to see that person. And there are prerequisite exercises that need to be completed well without symptoms, good form, to show that the pelvis, the pelvic floor has regained its capacity to manage the load of running or whatever it is that the activity might be. In this case, we're talking about running. So if I had somebody who was postpartum, I would 1000% be, so my, my protocol, and, and really it's the same protocol I would use for somebody who has existing symptoms, but they start with the breath, we layer it into movement, we progressively load it and we make those movements specific to the task of whatever it is, whatever activity is that they want to do. So whether the person is postpartum or whether the person has been experiencing running and now wants to be able to run without those symptoms, I'm still going to take that same runner and I'm going to scale them back. Now, there is often a little bit more resistance from the person who has been running, who is not postpartum to actually scale back. The person who has the new baby, they're a little bit more open to that. So I won't necessarily always say my, my recommendation is I would stop running or at least run shorter distances for a period of time so that we can really retrain the capacity of the pelvic floor. So that's my recommendation. Not everybody pays attention, but ideally they scale back something. So can we look, can we change the speed, the tempo, the gait? 
the terrain, the shoes, the, <clears throat> the frequency, the time, like there's all these other variables that we can also play around with to help them get into a symptom free zone while we are also retraining the pelvic floor. Um, so the, the general protocol, I would say really looks pretty similar for the postpartum versus the other person. Um, the other person may continue to add a little bit of running along the way, whereas I really would advise strongly against it for that postpartum person. Yeah, that's really cool. It's really cool that there's a system. I think it can, it's really helpful when we have, we like systems and structures and plans. And so for someone who is postpartum or experiencing um, issues that there, there is research and there is a, a bit of a system for you, you know, if you, and you might need someone to to lead you through that, but that's really important. And I think yeah. I saw it, um, I'm pretty sure you did a little series on your Instagram around uh, getting back into running and you were referring to some of this research. And the thing that I didn't really know was, you know, this four to six months or this three to six months uh, for the tissues to heal. And, you know, that's that should be the system or the plan of yeah. not this green light around six weeks and then uh, you know, we have so much pressure on ourselves to get back to where we were before, or even like you said, to stop doing it and to to pull back. Uh, yeah. We don't like the non-linearity of, yeah. of training. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the other thing that I'll add in there too, that's really important is that it is not linear. And even, even though there is a protocol and even though there is a timeline, and even though there are some prerequisite exercises, there will be some people who would be cleared to, to run around three or four months postpartum. And there's going to be other people who it'll be nine to 12 months. And the same goes for the person that's not postpartum. They may take two months to be able to retrain their pelvic floor and go back to where they were others. It could take six months or a year. So we have to recognize too, that, that, that while we can provide a little bit of guideline and that's the thing with online programs is we have to give people something, but at, we're all individual at the same time. We all have different influences in our life. We all have different execution of a specific exercise as well. So we have to appreciate that it's just because somebody else is here doesn't mean that you won't do it faster or that you might be take a little bit longer. Yeah. We don't like non-linearity. Yeah. I don't like it either. <laughs> yeah. I just want everything to be nice and linear and just progress and move up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, before we dig into like your work uh, and your books and is there anything else that you want to say when it comes to like the pelvic floor? Um, I think, I guess my overriding message is it's a really, really important part of the body. And I'm hoping that as the years go on, this message is starting to be taught at a younger age so that teens, when we're learning about, uh, like when we're teaching them about sexual wellness and body education, that we are also talking about the pelvic floor and why the female pelvic floor in particular is, um, is so much more important to, to pay attention. And men have a pelvic floor, they can have pelvic floor issues, but women because of the shape of our pelvis, because of our hormonal fluctuations, because we can birth babies, we have, a, we are at a much greater risk of experiencing challenges. So when we can impart that knowledge earlier on in a way that doesn't suck, like so much information is 
well, you're going to menstruate and you're going to have cramps and you're going to this. And, and, and so we were given this information like, well, that sucks. And that's not something. And I'm just going to push it over here. So I don't even just going to pretend it doesn't exist. If we presented it in a way about how powerful it makes us and how amazing our bodies are and how, um, how it's like superpowers almost, and how there are these amazing practitioners called pelvic health physiotherapists that can help us manage this. So once you become sexually active, that becomes part of your annual checkup, just like we see the dentist, right? We're told about dental health from a young age. So I think that my, I want people to understand how important that group of muscles is. I want them to understand that there are, it, it's very common to experience challenges and we should not just accept them as normal part of aging or because we're a woman and, um, and that it's never too late. If you already are experiencing challenges, it's never too late to, to make a change. Yeah. So true. And I love the piece around in a way that doesn't suck. <laughs> <laughs> it's really important because they, they do the same thing with our hormones and our cycle. They just present it in a way that completely sucks. Yeah. Well, it's like, it's like menopause. Like I I'm officially, I've officially reached my menopause now. So my whole world is learning about menopause and also um, taking courses to help educate others and, and working with that population. And, and when you read about menopause, it, it all is like, it's all going to suck. <laughs> right. And so there's this heaviness around it that you think, my gosh, like, it's just one more thing that I have to now manage on top of all these other things that I've, I've been navigating. So it, we have, we have, um, uh, we have increased risk of, of certain things. However, we also have the capacity to mitigate those risks with information and also taking action. Information is great, but it's the application of that information where the magic really happens. Yeah. So can you tell us uh, about your magic and how you present <laughs> this information and application in a way that doesn't suck? <laughs> so I, I've been told that I, I'm, I'm a very transparent person and I just, I just tell it like it is. And I, I try very hard to basically just explain like I would be explaining, this is your nose and this is your eye. And this is, you know, it's a body part. It's a group of muscles. This is how they work. Here's the exercises. This is in, and sharing my personal story, I think helps people relate and understand that they are not alone. And also bringing in the mental health component because, because it is, a, it, there's often a lot of shame because there's often a lot of um, embarrassment or, fear, anxiety around it, it can be a heavy load to our mental health. And so giving people tools to kind of help them get onto the other side of that, or it, it's, it's really, for some people, it's living with a chronic health condition. So things like birth injuries and trauma, there, there are some things that can't improve per se. So it's, it's helping them um, have tools to kind of see past that. Uh, so it's really, it's, uh, it's, it's being available. It's being accessible. It's telling people without, without a hush hush voice without, you know, yes, I use fun terms, but I also use vagina. Obviously I'm comfortable with the word vagina because I have it in my name. So <laughs> using proper anatomical terms, but also trying to keep things light and creating a community where people also see and understand that they are not alone in their, in their experiences. 
Yeah, beautiful. Can you share uh, share more about your work? Uh, where people, you have an amazing platform where you share amazing education, uh, but let's go deeper than that. Like how can people work with you? You've got your two books behind you. They're they're both yours, aren't they? Yeah. 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 <laughs> so can you just talk about, yeah, your work? Yeah. Um, so the, the very first program I created was Prepare to Push, and that's really the the pregnancy population and it that I also wrote a book about that as well. So that's the pregnancy side. The majority again of people are, are, are not pregnant and there's online programs at vaginacoach.com. And that's where you can learn a little bit more about the, the conditions that you may be experiencing. You can learn my personal story. You can find access to my books, the programs. Um, my most recent book, your pelvic floor, it was, it, it's been out for about a year and it was March, 2021 that it was launched. No, March, 2020, March, 2020, I think it was. Yes. Um, and that kind of, it was funny when they, when the publisher first approached me uh, to write this, I thought, oh my gosh, like writing a book is a lot of work. And I just thought, I just don't think I have anything. I don't think I can do this. And I stalled and stalled and stalled. And finally I said, yes. And then as I, like literally months after I said, yes, a couple months after I said, yes, the pandemic hit. And so writing that during the pandemic was a challenge, but it was also a good time because I, I didn't have as much other things uh, going on. So that's a really good kind of over through the life cycle story of pelvic health. And it's something that you can read and pay forward and give to another person in your life who, who you think could benefit. Um, and then I created an app about six months ago. And, you know, a lot of people like to have things on their phone and they were asking for exercises that they could have when they were wherever they were with their phone. So the, the app came out, there's a community on there as well. And yeah, so most stuff you can find at vaginacoach.com. My social media channels are all vagina coach. So basically if you go to Google, put vagina coach in, you'll find me somewhere. <laughs> Pinterest, YouTube, uh, TikTok, Instagram. I'm kind of in, in all the places. I'd say I hang out mostly on TikTok and Instagram now. Um, and I also post a decent amount to, to YouTube. And I will say though, sometimes as much as I'm open and share, I share very openly with what I'm going through. I I'm not the type that posts my whole day, every single day, what I ate for breakfast, what I just, and I know that some people like that and maybe they want that for me, but I just, it's exhausting and I need to protect my mental health as well. So I share quite organically. I don't have a regular schedule that I post things on. And I, I'm, I'm not I just post when I think I have something relevant that I need to share and hopefully it resonates with somebody at the right time. Yeah. It's a lot. It's a lot to, to not only, you know, be a coach and, and lead people and, and create courses and, and to, then to create content as well. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of, a lot of pieces and then live your own life, you know, yeah. do, your own, <laughs> do your own training and be in relationship with your family. And so, yeah. yeah. Uh, but I really want to say like, congratulations on writing the books. Like they're big babies to birth into the world, as well as that app. Like that is like, that's yeah. a, that's a big baby to birth yeah. into the world. There's a lot of work behind those things. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, there, there is. And, and I, I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm supported by also, you know, I have virtual assistants in some capacity as well, who've all helped me. So it's not just, 
I can take credit for the content, but the actual technical piece and all the other stuff, I can't take any credit for that part. But um, yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. It's I, I'm I'm really I, I'm I'm most proud of the book that I didn't think that I was going to say yes to. Um, you know, I I'm really. I'm really grateful to my husband who kind of nudged me and said, I really think you should do that. I'm grateful that that publisher came and asked me and I'm as much as I was reluctant, I'm really happy that that's out in the world and um, hopefully giving people a, a, like a safe place to go. And yeah. So thank you. I appreciate your, appreciate your words. Yeah. Your pelvic floor and it's a blue book and it has the pelvis. I'm looking at it on the screen here. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Kim, I could keep you forever because like that prepare to push book that I, I got all these thoughts in my mind around like, okay, like what position should our pelvis be in when we're like giving birth? And I like, and then you mentioned at the start of our call, like a screening. And so like, I could just keep you forever and ever, but I'm mindful of your time because you run a business and you have a life. And so we can ask. Um, we can end it there, but I have a million other <laughs> questions that I could ask you. I find it really fascinating. I find pregnancy and birthing, you know, a, a baby really fascinating, uh, the pelvic position really fascinating. And and I also would find that screening really fascinating. So maybe we could do another one one time. I would love to. That'd be yeah. great. Okay. Thank you so much for your time uh, and for the important work that you do. It's so important. Thank you. I really appreciate you helping get the word out. That's how the world is going to change for the better is by more people sharing it. And so I appreciate you bringing this onto your platform. Thank you. Oh yeah. I'll share it. I love the word vagina. I think I say it a million (laughs) times, a million times a day in my work too. Yeah. Vagina (laughs) forward, vagina to the roof, hold the (laughs) vagina. Yeah. <laughs> okay, thanks so much, Kim. Thank you very much. Bye. Warrior Woman, thanks so much for listening to this episode. If you haven't, please give the podcast some love by subscribing now. And if you enjoyed this episode, please rate it and share it with another Warrior Woman. Also, if you want to go crazy, I'd love if you wrote a review for the Warrior School podcast. And also share and tag me with your biggest takeaways for the episode on the gram. Okay, Warrior Woman, have a great week in training. Bye for now.